0: Let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the light of your Holy Word. May we receive its truths with faith and love, lay them up in our hearts, and practice them in our lives. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Please you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. is our scripture reading, and we'll walk through this great text of scripture, much needed in our time, for sure. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. This is God's word. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh of that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of, ma'am. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May God bless the reading of his holy word. I've given you an outline there in your bulletin, a four-point outline, if you'd like to follow along that way. Uh, Also, on the back of your bulletin, I... Just was kind of sitting down thinking about the the ways that we need to disciple our young people uh, to be uh, men or to be women, and I was thinking about every uh, specific passage of scripture that I could possibly think of. They're all listed there, and I would encourage you uh, to go over those um, with your kids uh, at least once a week for the rest of their natural lives, so that they understand all of that. And you can uh, tell them to call me if they have a problem with that. So point number one, discipling men to be men and women to be women. The immorality crisis and the adultery crisis that we are now facing is primarily because the art of godly marriage has been lost on generation after generation of people. Cultures that are obsessed with self, as America is, will never do very well with marriage. Godly marriage requires and demands that we learn to be unselfish, and I don't think I've ever heard of or studied a culture that has more to learn about unselfishness and self-sacrifice than America in 2024. And so when all else fails, and it has failed, it helps to go back to the simple, glorious, beautiful passages of divine scripture to see what human companionship, love, and marriage and family are supposed to be about. And if we would keep the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery we've got to understand biblical love and marriage and every couple that i've ever done pre-marriage counseling for has heard the same stuff from scripture in that opening meeting many of you probably remember this we just sat down and got our bibles out and did bible study for an hour now while there's many wonderful books out there on marriage that are very worth reading uh, for example the intimate marriage by rc sproul is a classic the Complete Husband by Lou Priolo. The men of this church have been reading that together. Living in a Godly Marriage by Joel Beakey. And there are many, many more great books. But they all go back to the same basic passages of Scripture, which you can read in their entirety in a matter of minutes. You see, it can take us hundreds of pages to exposit and get all that is out of these great passages through our thick skulls into our hearts. But we need to understand that God's law prohibits adultery. That's one of the basic biblical passages, and you can read that in in less than two seconds. You shall not commit adultery. The world around us swims in unrepentant adultery all day, every day. We must labor to keep ourselves unspotted from that sin. James 1.27, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, Visit orphans and widows in their distress, and keep yourself unspotted from the world. Let all of us, married and unmarried, widows, young children, singles, let us labor to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. That Greek word unspotted, (aspilas) means without spot and unstained. So we want our thinking about this topic, about adultery and about marriage, to be unstained, to be unspotted, to be a pure white garment that's purely biblical. You want to have a happy marriage? Please hear me then. You definitely want to keep yourself unspotted and unstained by the godless and self-destructive and self-centered and feministic worldliness that we're all swimming in on a daily basis. Go back to the key text of Scripture. On the roles of men and women and then read them slowly, carefully, methodically. And I've got a bunch of them listed here and I decided to turn into thoughts for Sabbath meditation for you. I'm not going to go over all of them here again, but please read through that list. They're basic passages, but if you have sons, you need to make sure they understand both passages. The ones about women and the ones about men. God has given us very distinct instructions, and you live in a society and a church culture that's trying to erase those differences. If we're going to get marriage right and not commit adultery, we have to get being a man right and being a woman right. The modern world has largely discarded all that the Creator has said on those matters, and because of that, people are pretty miserable. You think people are really happy today with all the new ideas? finally genesis 2:18 to 25 it's so key it's so critical it's so essential to life it's essential for marriage it's essential for society it, 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 that, its importance cannot be overstated what is said in these this little block of text jesus quotes this passage twice in the gospels paul quotes it in ephesians chapter 5 the great protestant reformation when that happened it also keyed in on this passage as it became so foundational to getting rid of monastic cloisters and convents and bringing the blessings of godly marriage and family back to the table for consideration, marriage was not and is not a necessary evil. And I remembered from my seminary training that Augustine himself did not understand this. And so I actually have a theological encyclopedia. It's called Augustine Through the Ages, and I read the article Augustine's View of Sex. It was really depressing. He, he thinks sex is, part, is connected necessarily to original sin. And the only reason we have any desire for it is related to sin. I just think that's his Neoplatonic ideas and these weird philosophical ideas. The, the Reformation got rid of all that. They went back to scripture and said, no, sex is a blessing. It's to be enjoyed and celebrated within marriage alone. It is not inherently evil. It, it's a good thing. Now, we have, by our disobedience and adultery, we've turned what was supposed to be a a huge blessing and a wonderful thing into a curse that hurts people and ruins them physically, spiritually, and every other way. So we don't agree with the great Augustine as much as he was a brilliant man, but we don't agree with him on things like that. Sex is a gift from God. Children are a blessing to be sought for and prayed for with enthusiasm and and joy. And I've mentioned to you all before, in my entire Christian life, and I was born and raised in the church and we never miss church, I've heard tens of thousands of men pray. I've heard so many people pray. I have heard one man ask God for children in my entire life. To actually, actually pray, Lord, bless us with kids. One. In my entire... What does that mean? Throughout the whole Bible, people cried out to God, give us children, give us children. Why do we not do that anymore? This passage here in Genesis 2, 18 to 25, one one commentator described it as, quote, the moral miracle of the ancient world. Why would they call it that? Because it teaches that God's intention for marriage was always, from the sixth day of creation, monogamy, not polygamy. And that was written at a time by the hand of Moses, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, when... Polygamy was the order of the day. Monogamy was unheard of. The Pharaoh Ramesses the Great, he received his first harem at age 15. He was given a harem of women when he was 15 years old. He fathered more than 100 children from all these women. And then you enter into that world, this divine creator, Yahweh, Jehovah, who destroyed Egypt. Through Moses, with no battles, and brought them out of that place and destroyed all of Egypt's gods. The one creator of the whole universe, the one who is real, actually intended for every man on earth to be married to and to have sexual relations with one woman for life. In a culture where pharaohs were given harems when they were young teenagers... Every time I hear the ignorant, the evil, the erring, and the wicked say, the Bible, the Bible's oppressive towards women, I just shudder. I shudder to hear that. Genesis 2, 18 to 25 is the moral miracle of the world. It stood as a beacon of hope in a world where women were considered dirt, sex objects, and they were treated as such. Did you know that during John Calvin's lifetime, the time that he lived and worked there, the city of Geneva became known throughout the Europe throughout Europe as quote a woman's paradise because of the very strict penalties that were imposed upon any man that abused his wife. Yeah, I wasn't taught that in public school either. <laughs> no, we were too busy reading The Scarlet Letter and other myths. Johannes Ockelampadius, a German reformer that I, you probably haven't heard of him. I had to work on that pronunciation, by the way. Johannes Ockelampadius. He, he said this, listen to this quote, this is in 1539, as they're recovering the biblical vision of marriage and family, he says, God wished to form the woman Eve to be man's companion so that there should be the most intimate closeness and friendship between the man and the woman. So he took her out of Adam's side, sending sleep on Adam beforehand. It is necessary here that we bid farewell to our reason and let the story be the story. For the God who made all things, it was most easy to remove a rib and to put flesh upon it. By that miracle, God wanted to commend to us the highest love and friendship which the married ought to preserve between them. And finally, to teach each one to acknowledge one's spouse as one's own flesh. End quote. See what happens when you discard the unbiblical philosophies and just go back to the text. Here you have a guy, this German reformer, he's going phrase by phrase through this little block of text here and wow, God wants us to be the closest of friends and companions. You see what happens if you just discard the unbiblical ideas and go back to the text. What's so remarkable about walking through this passage going through it slowly is God's generosity and God's loving heart toward Adam and later to Eve. God is giving because he chooses to love freely and abundantly. Even as fallen sinners when we love someone, we delight to give to them, don't we? We want to give things to them. We want to give of ourselves, our time to them. We give things to them. And we give ourselves, our hearts to people that we love. Even Jesus said about sinful people, Matthew seven eleven. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Here God shows his super abundance by not only giving a helper to Adam but by giving Adam and Eve or Adam to Eve to be her friend, to be her spiritual leader and to be her teacher. God gives Adam a wife, one wife, one woman to knit his body and his soul to, to walk hand in hand with and to worship God with. God knew that man needs a friend, a special close friend who corresponded to him emotionally and physically. God provides and God gives because God loves. Is this not exactly what God did for sinners in Christ? God so loved the world and in this way he loved the world that he gave, he gave his son. God loves mankind, he gave a man a wife. Our great Westminster Confession of Faith says this on marriage. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife. Man and wife are gifts of God to one another to be a support and encouragement, a friend and a companion. When marriage is done God's way, where the man is self-sacrificial and he's loyal with his body, with his mind, and he has as his number one earthly priority the physical and spiritual well-being of his wife, his closest companion and his friend, and then his children, if they have any. When he is patient, when he is Gentle and kind to her and his family when he, takes, when he takes with the utmost seriousness and care his roles as protector, provider, spiritual leader. When the wife is submissive to him and supportive of him. When the children are in subjection and obeying their parents joyfully from the heart. When there's patience on the part of all and self-control. Biblical, godly family life is a joy beyond description. It's a sanctuary of joy and happiness that can be such a powerful shield against all that grieves and troubles us in both ourselves and in the world around us. The early church father, Tertullian, was married. He lived from 160 to 225 AD. He said this wonderful paragraph about marriage. How beautiful then the marriage of two Christians, two who are one in hope, one in desire, one in the way of life they follow, one in the religion they practice. They are as brother and sister, both servants of the same master. Nothing divides them, either in flesh or in spirit. They are, in very truth, two in one flesh. And where there is but one flesh, there is also but one spirit. They pray together. They worship together. They fast together, instruct one another, encouraging one another, strengthening one another. Side by side, they visit God's church and partake of God's banquet. Side by side, they face difficulties and persecution, share their consolations. They have no secrets from one another. They never shun each other's company. They never bring sorrow to each other's hearts. End quote. I think Tertullian had a good marriage. How sad and devastating it is to consider the heartache and pain people have experienced due to marriage because of the entrance of sin into this world and into our hearts as God's image bearers. But on this day, on the sixth day of creation, what we read here in this passage, such was not the case. What joy, love, acceptance, peace filled the hearts of Adam and Eve when they embraced one another for the very first time. Can you imagine that? The very first time they reached out and took each other by the hand and experienced that companionship. Here's someone, they're the opposite of me, my close companion, my friend. In perfect communion, perfect fellowship with one another, created as perfect compliments to each other. With hearts full of God, a beautiful world before their eyes, and a trusted friend by their side. Was there anything that they could not do for God? What a day it was to have a perfect marriage for even a short time. So let's walk through the passage here. Look at verse 18. This next point I've titled, It Is Not Good. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man, the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Okay, stop there. God had pronounced the things he created to be good six times in Genesis 1. And then at the end, he surveyed all that he had created and pronounced it to be very good. And you know what? That included Adam. Adam was very good. But here, God, by his own divine plan and his own purpose, looks at the man and says that his aloneness is not good. Or as one uh, Christian preacher said recently, God took one look at Adam and said, he ain't going to make it. (laughs) It's not good. It's, it's not good to be alone, he says. It's not that it was evil or bad that he was alone, but it just wasn't good. God makes the statement, I'll make him a helper, comparable to him. That Hebrew word, azer, helper, comparable to him. That word comparable is the Hebrew term neged. It means that which is opposite, that which corresponds. The helper that God was going to make would be the opposite of Adam. He, she would be the opposite of him emotionally and physically. She would complement him in that way. And what follows is, in the narrative is just remarkable. Be, before God makes this helper for Adam, he first has Adam name every kind of animal on land. How, how you like that for a day's work? Uh, Look at verse 19 and 20. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. It's almost as if God is heightening Adam's anticipation of who this helper comparable to him is going to be. God is presenting all of these animals to Adam, and Adam is naming each kind of animal. Uh, One commentator, Henry Morris, said this, quote, As one after another of the animals passed before him, no doubt in pairs, male and female, Adam could not help but be impressed with his own uniqueness, not only in intelligence and spirituality, but also aloneness. Each animal had its mate, but for Adam there was not found a helpmeet for him. Now, some have questioned whether there would be enough time in just one day for such an extensive activity as naming all the animals on land. Listen to this quote. Henry Morris responds to that. It is not likely that all these animals actually lived in the Garden of Eden, though they may have had access to it. Therefore, God must have directed them to come to Adam in some unknown fashion so that both master and animal might learn to know each other. We have no way of knowing exactly how many kinds of animals appeared before Adam, but it was clearly not such a large number as to be incapable of of examination within a few hours at most. It's not unreasonable to suggest that Adam could note and name about 10 kinds each minute, so that in, say, five hours, about 3,000 kinds of animals could be identified. Clearly, this number seems more than adequate to meet the needs of the case, end quote. So remember, there would just been one bear kind. All the bears of the earth came from the one bear kind. And all the horses of the earth came from one horse kind. All the dogs of the earth, from the Chihuahua to the Great Dane, even though they didn't exist yet, all came from the one dog kind and the cat kind. So there's not millions of kinds of animals. There's just a few kinds and they they speciate. Adam was well aware that God was going to make a helper for him. Adam would have seen the animals having mates. Remember, the animals had already been commanded by God, be fruitful and multiply. And they couldn't have done that unless their male and female counterparts were already there. So they already had their corresponding gender mates with which to be fruitful and multiply. However, please listen, male animals are never said to have helpers. They simply have mates. All Adam knew was that God was going to make him a helper comparable to him. And he must have been anticipating meeting her with great joy. And by the way, when when dogs mate, when cats mate, when when the various kinds of animals mate, they're not mating with with a a corresponding part of them that was taken out of one of their ribs. That's unique to us. The the relationship that, that the married man and woman have with each other is totally unique in the entire created cosmos. It has no analog at all in the animal kingdom. God brings a very large number of animals to Adam and he names them. And it's clear from the last sentence of verse 20... Adam was looking and waiting with bated breath to meet his helper. Look at the last sentence of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And here we have the repetition of that, that term, suitable or comparable, which means opposite corresponding to. Okay, You can't marry a mirror image of yourself. You can only marry someone who is opposite of you. And it's vital that we understand that the woman God was about to create would be one that corresponded to Adam, not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. Only a woman will be a suitable, comparable, complementary helper to Adam. So look at point three there, verse 21 to 23. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now we must be careful not to view this operation here as in any way similar to what we experience with surgery today. There, there was no recovery time. There was no IV drip or post-surgery nausea due to anesthetic. Adam was simply put to sleep by God, and God takes out one of his ribs and then closes up the place that he made. Now, this is still in an unfallen world. So there there was no pain, there was no danger in this at all. All this had been meticulously planned by God for the purpose of giving this precious gift to Adam. Remember, God, because he loves, he gives. He gives gifts to his people. A wife, a friend, a companion, a helper. God heightened the anticipation For Adam. Based upon what Adam exclaims in verse 23, it seems clear God told Adam directly what he was about to do. Adam knew that one of his ribs had been taken out and had been built into this woman. And that Hebrew word, Bana, which is translated in Young's literal translation as buildeth. God buildeth a woman out of his rib. He constructed a a counterpart for him, a helper for him, out of his rib. John Calvin said this, Something was removed from Adam in order that he might embrace with greater kindness a part of himself. Thus, he did lose a rib, still quoting Calvin, but he was repaid for it with a far richer reward, since he obtained a faithful and lifelong companion. Even more, he now saw himself made whole in his wife, where previously he had been but half a self, end quote. Remember that wonderful passage, Ephesians 5, 28? He who loves his wife loves who? Himself. God builds a helper comparable to Adam. She is the opposite sex and also corresponds to him in the way she was built by God. Contrary to all the animals that Adam had just made, she is exactly what is needed to take away the saying, it is not good that man should be alone. And even though there were probably millions of other beings in the world and animals and birds and things in the seas and everything else, Adam is still alone until this woman appears, until she's given to him. And then, and only then, he's not alone anymore. It's important to note Given the two verses which follow, verse twenty-five, four and 25, Eve was not just created as a companion, nor just as a helper, but as a wife. She's going to be his wife. A, a wedding, in a sense, is going to take place here. There's going to be the, the formation of a family here. Adam's reaction is glorious. Look at verse 23 again. The man takes one look at her. The man says... This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, which in Hebrew is isha, because she was taken out of man, which is the Hebrew word ish. Adam is unable to contain his delight. God just built this woman, this this helper to him, this companion, this wife, from one of his ribs. And it says in the text, And he brought her to the man. I mean, imagine that moment here. God is bringing her and Adam sees her for the very first time and God brings her to the man and all Adam can do is have an outburst of poetic praise. John Curie, the commentator said, Adam's response to the creation of the woman is elation and his words have an elevated style. In fact, these first recorded human words are poetic. He begins by explaining this time, this time, It's almost like, yeah, I've seen every single animal that you created, and not this time, not this time, not this one, not this one, not this one. This time, this is what I'm talking about. This translates to a phrase that literally means, at this repetition, after God had brought all the animals to man, at last he sees a creature corresponding to him. And he says, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is an expression that's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to family, family. If someone is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, it's because they're family to me. In Judges 9 verse 2, it's describing uh, all, to all the men of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbaal reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember, I am your own flesh and bone, meaning I'm your relative. We're part of the same family. First Chronicles 11 1, Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. So what does Adam mean by that? This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What he's saying is we are family. You and me are uh, going to be together forever now. We're family. Adam says in verse 23, she shall be called woman, which, which literally in Hebrew means out of man, like the, the directional hay on the end of the, remember that guys that are studying Hebrew? The directional hay. So isha means out of a man. I mean, that's what he called her, woman. So it's ish and isha. So you can only have marriage if you have an ish, a man, and an isha out of the man. So even the words which define the two complement each other, ish and isha. And now we have a man and a woman, not yet married, but standing before one another, beholding one another. And it is all exactly right. It's all exactly right, the way it's supposed to be. She's going to be his helper. And Adam likes what he sees, and he rejoices in what he sees. Proverbs 5.18 says to the young married man, rejoice in the wife of your youth. And that's exactly what Adam is doing. This woman, his fellow image bearer of God, she brings delight to Adam. Adam is excited about her. He's excited about their upcoming marriage. Isn't it remarkable to you that the very first words from a man's mouth in recorded human history are a poetical exclamation of joy over seeing his wife? What does that tell us? You should do the same thing. Remember Proverbs 31? He blesses her. The, the, the man blesses her. He speaks about her and praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. He, he praises her with poetry. And then fourthly, fourth point, verse 24 and 25, key part of the passage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father or mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In our strange and unprecedented times where marriage, this precious and sacred institution created by God for the mutual help of man and woman is being dishonored. God is being dreadfully provoked by the idea that a man could marry another man or a woman could marry another woman. We need to point out several key things here from the passage Number one is the definition of marriage is controlled by marriage's creator. The definition of marriage is controlled by the creator of marriage. The definition of the word marriage is not changeable. It's not fluid. It can't shift. And in fact, the created order itself testifies to that fact. To attempt to modify the meaning of marriage by saying that a man could marry another man is as absurd as speaking of married bachelors or square circles. No matter what the state or a government pronounces on the matter, marriage will always be one man and one woman being one flesh before God for life. That's what it will always be. There's not a single man anywhere on earth, never has been, never will be, who is married to another man. That has never happened, will never happen, it can't happen. It is physically impossible for that to happen. No matter what a magistrate or the state says about it. Nor is there a man anywhere on earth Never has been and never will be. Please listen to me. Who loves another man as a married man loves his wife. Nor is there a woman anywhere on earth who loves another woman in the same way a woman would love her husband. God created men and women with an opposite correspondence in their biological sex. Physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And it is impossible for anyone to truly love and be self-giving to a mirror image of themselves. It cannot happen. Long ago during my college days, someone once said to me in favor of homosexuality, but they, but they have loving and committed relationships with one another. And at the time, I wasn't sure how to respond to that. But having studied the issue in scripture and looked more carefully at God's word, the simple answer to the question is no, they do not. No, they don't. No one can love a mirror image of themselves in this way. It can't happen. No man has ever married another man. No woman has ever married another woman. Am I being clear enough to y'all? Okay. There's a great book called The Same-Sex Controversy. It was written in the past. This book's probably 20 years old now. James White wrote this. What is the truth about marriage? Biblically considered, marriage is to be between one man and one woman. A man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. One man and one woman are to become one flesh. They are to be joined together. In marriage, the man and the woman are united in what the Bible calls a covenant, Malachi 2.15, Proverbs 2.17. The marriage covenant is something that they have entered into. It is something outside of the man and the woman. It is not of their design. This covenant is God's design, and he has nowhere designed such a covenant for members of the same sex. Furthermore, the man and the woman are to be complementary to one another. They are to work together in the ways that God has prescribed Part of this complementariness is seen in the role of the married man and woman in their ability to produce children, solely possible in principle with the two sexes. Many marriages are found in the Bible. A homosexual marriage is not a covenant ordained by God. It is not complementary, being the same, and it lacks the ability in principle to produce children. It is a non-perpetuating entity this fact is seen from another angle children are to have parents and in the bible these are called father and mother and everybody here whether you've ever met them or not has a father and a mother right now i'm sure that there's men somewhere in america that are really whining and fussing they want to have a baby but it's not going to happen White says, every instance of marriage in the Bible is heterosexual because no homosexual union can be considered a marriage. Every time divorce comes up in scripture, the dissolution of a marriage between persons is is mentioned in the Bible. It is between a man and a woman, end quote. There are several important and indisputable conclusions that we have to draw from Genesis 2, 24 to 25, uh, about marriage as created by God the first thing, and as I said, this is the moral miracle of the ancient world. Marriage is monogamous. Each man has only one wife. That was just unheard of when Moses wrote that by the divine guidance of the Holy Spirit that in the original creation on the sixth day, God made a man and he didn't take half of his rib cage out and make him a harem. He took one rib out and made him a wife. And the two become one flesh. Not the 10 or the 20 or whatever, but two. God's intention for marriage was monogamy, loyalty, faithfulness for life. A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, his Isha. singular. God wants a one woman man and a one man woman. Polygamy, it doesn't enter the world until... Cain's descendant Lamech comes along, as far as we know. Remember, he had two wives, Ada and Zillah. So that's the first thing. Marriage was monogamous. Number two, marriage was heterosexual. God created a woman from Adam's side. Marriage and family and the one flesh union begins a, a new and independent family unit with its own jurisdiction. That's only possible with a man and a woman. Listen, family is another term that God owns the definition of. Family is not just an agreement between two or more people for purposes of economic advantage. I've actually heard progressives define it that way. Family, this one flesh union, is a man being married to his wife and the possibility, at least, of the blessing of children. So marriage is heterosexual. Thirdly, there's hierarchy in the marriage. Adam's created first, then Eve. Adam is the head of this one flesh union, and she is to submit to him and obey him. Paul uses this order of creation as an argument in 1 Timothy 2.14 as to why women are not allowed to have authority over or to teach men in the church. God's wisdom is reflected beautifully in this wonderful creation ordinance of marriage. And when God sees fit to open the womb, he grants children new life to the marriage union and for the expansion of the human race and the dominion task in the world. So there's hierarchy in the marriage. The husband is the head of the wife and she is called to submit to him. Fourthly, the institution of family jurisdiction, meaning that the family is a self governing entity. It's also, that's introduced in this passage too. How is it introduced here? Because the the male children leave their father and mother, meaning what? They come out from under their authority and they're joined to their wife and they establish a new sphere of jurisdiction. When that happens, the two become one flesh, they become a new self governing family unit with that man as the new head of that household. And even in the Christian wedding ceremonies that are done today, whether people realize it or not, there's still that, that remnant of, of creation in the Christian heritage where we ask, who gives this woman to be married to this man? What's implied in that, it's understood the father's got to give his permission and transfer that headship to this new family, this new household. The two become one in their direction and in their purpose in life as well. No two entities, in fact, no two life forms can do this other than a man and a woman. Animals do not get married and they don't start families. There are some animals that will mate for life, but animals are not images of God. They don't get married and they don't start families per se. I had a guy tell me that because of evolution, that killing a mosquito that lands on your hand is the same as aborting a baby. I said, "Have you ever taken an antibiotic?" Oh yeah, I said oh, all, all of those innocent bacteria that you murdered. I mean, they're just going to work and try to make an honest day's living to take care of their. He's like, "Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Is that not ridiculous?" Has someone said that. In biblical marriage, the two become one flesh. Also, that points to an absolute and undying need for unity and purpose and worldview on the part of the man and the woman who are married. I I can't emphasize this enough to you. When the scripture says the two become one flesh, that's not just physically one flesh. It's one in your purpose for existing. One in the reason that you live in this world. Because this family unit is the basic building block of all societies. It's foundational that the husband and wife be united in what they believe and in what they're living for. While this was irrelevant for Adam and Eve, I mean, Adam didn't court Eve or, you know, see other people. Since they both obviously had only ever loved and worshipped God too, it becomes absolutely foundational after the advent of sin. Once sin comes into the world, and now there's lots of us in the world, God's people must not marry people who are not God's people. And God's gracious and sometimes challenging providence, there will be times that that will happen. And that's a situation the Word of God addresses directly at times people are married and they don't know, they think the other person's a Christian or they get married and they're not Christians and one of them gets saved. That's addressed directly. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Peter chapter 3 addresses that very situation pastorally. God is gracious and, and God has direction for that. But God's people must not knowingly marry an unbeliever. If you know that, you can't do it. One of Satan's greatest weapons against the church that has neutralized its effectiveness so often in the past is making every possible effort to erase the antithesis between believer and unbeliever. He's trying to act like it's not that big of a deal. It's the biggest deal there is who your allegiance is to. If you're a slave of sin or a slave of Christ, let us always remember that the advent of sin into the hearts of all men and the saving of God's remnant by his grace, that has polarized people that has polarized the human, the human race, believers and unbelievers, where there's two great categories. There's those that know Christ and those that are the enemies of Christ. We stand on opposing sides of the greatest war imaginable, the, the war between good and evil, God and the devil, truth and falsehood. God forbids the intermarrying of his saints with his enemies. I, I know that's as, as politically incorrect as a person could possibly be. But what are we to do with the text of scripture? How serious is that? I really believe the intermarrying of believers with unbelievers is what led to the worldwide flood. That's why God destroyed the whole world, except eight people in the ark. Remember that passage? There's all kinds of odd interpretations that, as if the sons of God are angels that interbred with people. and they, I think that's nonsense. Genesis 6 says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, that's those that know the one true God, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. Remember, who who alone can take a wife? A man. So these are men taking wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years, meaning 120 years from now, I'm going to destroy the whole world with a flood. There were giants on the earth in those days. And afterward, also, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Sons of God marrying unbelievers. I believe led to that. It led to the corruption of, of the entire earth. Violence was everywhere. The Westminster Confession, following 1 Corinthians 7, following Genesis chapter 2, following many other passages, says in 24.3, it is lawful for all sorts of people to marry, meaning there's, there's no such thing as race. There's just people with different colored skin and things like that. Anyone that, that can get married who are able with judgment to give their consent, yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. The scripture teaches us that. Second Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. As men leave their father and mother and are joined to their wife and the two become one flesh, there needs to be unity and harmony of purpose and worldview in that new family unit for it to function well in the dominion task appointed to us in this fallen world. And so hear me, God prohibits, prohibits adultery. This is why you need to take every precaution possible to make sure that you marry a believer. You know, at my, my dad's funeral, um, people there were, were influenced by my father at the church where they've, they've been members for 41 years. And um, he apparently gave out the common sense essays that he wrote me, gave it to a lot of people there too. <laughs> and someone stood up and, and said, this is a com- scripture-based common sense, an essay he gave to me when I was like 18 years old. And point number one says, if you only date Christians, the chances of marrying one are 100%. <laughs> Because he really wanted me to, he he had a way of of saying what was obvious uh, to me. Because when you're a teenager, things that should be obvious kind of aren't. Make that your priority as you consider marriage. Your creator and redeemer intended marriage to be lifelong. It's supposed to be permanent. Permanent. Sex is for one person. The person you're married to. God, the gracious, loving, and super abundant, abundant being that he is, he gave the gift of marriage to us and the blessing of sex within that covenant. One man and one woman for life, to share life together in the service of their great creator, to be there for each other, to take care of each other when, when you're sick, when you're rich, when you're poor, when all the storms of life happen, you've always got this one person, you're arm in arm, hand in hand. We are for each other, we're loyal to each other, faithful to each other. God built a woman out of Adam's rib, out of his own body. And God then joins the two together as one in the Holy Marriage Covenant. And I'd like to close with another remarkable quotation from a Swiss reformer. Another guy, his name was Wolfgang Musculus. Here's another another reformer in the 16th century who was doing what the reformers were doing. What were they doing? They were reading, reading their Bibles again, studying real carefully what Scripture says. Listen to his take on this. I love this quote. This is from 1554. He wrote this. God did not form woman from the dust of the earth as he formed Adam, but from Adam's own body. Isn't that a great insight? I never, I never noticed that until I read that. Yeah, God made Adam out of the dust, but what, he didn't take more dust and make her. He took her out of his own body. And even then, not from a lock of hair or a patch of skin, but from his flesh and bone. He took her from the innermost part of the man because he formed her to be united to him. Who does not see that God wishes the man and the woman to be bound together rightly and to embrace one another in mutual love? To be sure, he joined every kind of animal in pairs, but of none do we read that they take females that have sprung from their own flesh. Rather, rather for the animals... It was enough that they should have the same bodily form, similar in appearance, but difference in sex. Here, however, there appears the unique relationship of having the same flesh. Indeed, the very same on account of which the apostle says, He who loves his wife loves himself, Ephesians 5.18. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. So Wolfgang Musculus was reading Ephesians too. He goes on, note also that when God wished to form the woman from Adam's own body, he took her to to be formed not just from any part of Adam, but from his side. Not from Adam's head, lest the woman grow haughty on account of her origin, nor from his feet, lest she seem to be demoted to the worthlessness and insignificance of a slave, but rather from Adam's side so that he would know she was made to be his partner and the inseparable companion of his life, and so that she might legitimately cleave to his side from whence she was taken, end quote. not awesome? Just go back to the text real carefully, phrase by phrase, work through that. Everything in there is filled with meaning for us to keep in our hearts. So I ask the question again, what is required in the seventh commandment? Seventh Commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. What is forbidden in the Seventh Commandment? The Seventh Commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. To do this, we need to understand and love biblical marriage as God created it and describes it to us. We need to be unspotted from the world's ideas and be purely biblical, always knowing that as we try to do this stuff well, that the blood of Christ covers even our failures to do that too. Let's close and pray. Father, thank you for the gift of marriage. And I pray that for those that are married, that this passage would penetrate our hearts and that we would see the glorious and wonderful friendship, companionship, understanding that it teaches to us, that men would lead well in that one flesh union, that that new covenant household where he's left his father and mother and is now the, the leader of his own family. Help us to take all these things to heart, to remember them, and to know that no matter how we have failed or will fail with regard to our marriages, that Christ's blood and his righteousness always avail for the adopted child of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.